What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Taking Flight Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kostelnik, founder and CEO of Postal. In this podcast, I'll be interviewing go-to-market leaders and founders who will share how they've grown their careers, how they approach new roles, and experiments and creative tests they've run to help their businesses take flight. As we chat for every question, they'll be tasting items from a featured flight that's sponsored by a vendor from the Postal Marketplace. This episode was sponsored by Rod and Hammer's Slow Stills here in beautiful San Luis Obispo. You can learn more about their canned cocktails and the flight that we took on the Postal Marketplace and in Taking Flight's podcast notes. On Taking Flight's maiden voyage, we had the pleasure of talking shop with legendary CRO, Seth Shaw. In addition to being one of my mentors, Seth's been responsible for creating billions of dollars of value to shareholders over his career, including taking LogMeIn public as their CRO, growing right to over a billion dollars in value, and running the PLG motions as CRO at category leaders in Vision and Airtable. Let's get into it. Hey, everybody. This is Eric Stelnick, and I'm joined here with our guest, Seth Shaw, for the first episode of Taking Flight from yours truly and Postal. First, we're going to do a shout out to our sponsors and our vendor of choice for our first episode. This happens to be one of my favorite in-town vendors here in San Luis Obispo. This is Rodden Hammers, which is a new distillery that opened up that does California whiskey. So today, as a part of our of our first episode, we're going to do flights of whiskey drinks. Yay! At 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so thank you to Rodden Hammers. All right, so we're going to start off with uh, the first question that we're going to ask, but we're going to we're going to get into a, a whiskey mai tai, which is a rye whiskey base, and uh, Seth required that we have uh, ice cubes. Yeah, I required. So, I had ice cubes. Yes, I. It's probably going to be a good idea. By suggested the way. you drink it straight. Yes. Well, this it's a nice color. It does. It does smell pleasant. It is nice. Cheers. Cheers. All right. All right. So we're going to get into it. That's good. Um, fruity. Like a good breakfast drink, maybe? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was Megs. <laughs> All right, man. Let's get into your career. First question is career-based, right? Okay. So we are, uh, we've known each other for a while. Fortunately, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, tell me about your career. Tell everybody about your career. You've been a pretty impressive, oh expansive career. And you were able to do a lot in the last you know, 20 years. So let's let's hear it. I appreciate that this is the first episode. So yeah. this is like setting a benchmark. That's right. So nowhere to go but up from here. Right. Yeah, my career, I, I'm an accidental salesperson. I, uh, I had my first sales experience in college. I was selling books door to door in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Um, it was a trying experience to say the least. Yeah. A lot of doors slammed on my face, a lot of rejection. And so I was spending 18 hours a day uh, Monday through Saturday, uh, taking a day off on Sunday, knocking on doors. And it taught me a lot about like the process of selling, um, how to do territory management, how to do pre-approach, came up with a lot of uh, sayings like be funny, make money. And I tell you what, that summer, it was a lot of learnings, but like an emotional roller coaster to the point where I was like, sales is definitely not for me. Yeah. Um, fast forward a couple of years, uh, and the first job that I could get was working as a support technician for a technology company, um, literally learned C++ programming, wow. uh, was typing support tickets 
um, pretty much hated my job yeah. because it was just boring yeah. and I wasn't interacting with people. One day the CEO comes to me and basically was like, Hey, you should get into sales. You have a personality for it. I shared with him my experience in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Yeah. He's like, B2B sales is nothing like knocking right. on doors. Get over yourself. It'll be fine. And that pretty much launched my career. I, uh, I was a field salesperson for a number of years. The most formative career experience was joining a company called Log Me In. My mentor, Kevin Harrison, was the VP of sales there and was just like, they're yep. doing this thing called um, uh, product-led growth. Actually, they didn't even call it product-led This is like 2008? Growth. This is 2008. Yeah. And this was like, they had application service providers. This is pre-SaaS right. really being a thing. On-prem. Uh, but, but that this was the difference. We were not on-prem. We were this hosted connectivity service that allowed two computers that were connected to, to the internet to bridge this connection. They had this point to point connection technology and they built, uh, the first kind of freemium business model where we gave this product away for free right. and it created this massive amount of inbound volume and allowed us to be able to segment that traffic into different populations that we could sell products to. Yeah. And super high growth, grew through the recession, grew through the recession, went public. I had an opportunity to move to Australia and open an office there. Yeah. I had an opportunity to run the international business from Amsterdam, was eventually promoted to be the global head of sales and support and was an executive officer in a public SaaS company at like 31 years old. Yeah. And I was terrible at my job. Yeah. Like I literally I did not. that, but yes. I, I mean, you I could have been better. Always... You could have been more experienced, but like, I'm guessing you weren't terrible. I was, I understood our customers <laughs> and I understood how we made money. Yeah. But I didn't know the job of being effectively a, a CRO. Public A public CRO. company head of revenue. And, yeah. and the different disciplines. Or if required. you wanted to do that. Or if I wanted to do that. I mean, it's one of those things where I think when you get into these situations where the next piece of cheese is in front of you on this kind of maze of a, of a life that we're running on. Like there is no doubt that you're just like, yeah, I could do that. Like yeah. I should totally do that. Yeah. And it's probably a little bit of like, um, ignorance to like the downsides of doing those things yeah. as, as well as the competitive drive that I think everybody that's kind of in this like sales profession business profession, we, just want in more. General, we always want more. We yeah. always want to try something new. Looking back on it now, it's funny because I've just learned so much more in the kind of nest set of experiences that I had. If I could have done that one over again, there's so many things I would have done differently. Yeah. So and then we met We met at Reich. So you, Reich. you recruited me uh, as the CRO of Reich to, to come over and help you build out yeah. the sales org. That was early days. That was 2013. Yeah. Right. Uh, Andrew Filo, the founder and CEO, um, was a technical visionary who built a really interesting product for basically online project management. Yep. And like the competing alternatives are like Microsoft Project and a few other SaaS solutions. But for the most part, people were not organizing their work in a formal system. Yep. So we were placing things like emails and spreadsheets and Word documents yep. and stand up meetings. And the challenge for us at the time was we have all these people that are interested in the product. How do we concern that? How do we turn that interest into actual paying customers? I mean, when, when I joined, we were at roughly 18,000 free trial leads a month, yeah. right? So we were, I mean, and we had a sales team at the time of like five people. So when you think about, and now, you know, when I left and, and you continued on after two years, it, we had like 200 sales reps. We had a huge CS team. Like yeah. it was, it was 
and we were part of the Deloitte, you know, Fast 500. Like it was, it was a, an experience to say the least. I mean, we did a lot in those two years. When you think about the next phase, and we're going to get into process, and we're going to get into more drinks. But when you think about the next phase of going from Reich, which was that, just lightning in a bottle, it hit, we had all the right process, all the right people, and we went and it eventually became a multi-billion dollar company into something like Envision and yeah. then Airtable. Let's talk a little bit about that transition because I know that those two those two next roles weren't exactly like our experience at Reich. Yeah, you know, it's funny when you're going from like working at a public company at log me in to then being like, okay, I'm a $3 million to like, revenue. I'm company. going to like completely go away from all of the luxuries of a public company, like yeah. predictability, all the systems are in place, like how you model and measure the business, the right type of people to hire the uh, like budgets that, you know, are a mile long. And you think about going to a place where it's like, hey, we don't even know if this is a real business or not. Right, like, right, right. We know that like there's interest here, but we don't know if people are going to pay us. Like, right. Two and a half million dollars in business. Yeah. That requires a certain amount of humility that you're not going to figure it out. And so my default setting when I joined Reich was always like, I don't know. I don't know if we're going to get there. Yeah. And that was. Really it's hard to be a pessimist when you're an optimist as well. I, it really you, is like you're. Like for me, I was looking for the reasons why this wouldn't be successful. Right. And, and that's forced. It, and because you're a salesperson, you uh, yeah. believe you take a job, you're like going to sell stuff. We're going to crush it. Yeah. Right. But at the same time, it, like the pragmatist in me who was like thinking about my career as almost like, you know, a stock portfolio. It's like, what stocks do I want to own? Like, what companies do I want to associate myself with? And you're just like, can I actually bet on this thing being an undervalued asset? And that's where you get into like, here are all the reasons it won't succeed that put you in a position to like start building your list of things we have to figure out right. to be able to be a successful business. Right. And for me, the pattern recognition was, okay, at Reich, we had all this inbound interest, but our conversion to paid customers was pretty mediocre, right. like one, 2%, I was something say it was along two. those lines. Yeah. It, was, it was pretty low. And so it was obvious when you started to like spend time with the sales reps, who are all like incredibly smart, well-motivated people. Like Andrew, when he built like the initial rep, uh, three sales rep team had like great, like athletes, like yeah. really intellectually sophisticated folks that yep. could figure problems out, but there was no consistency. Yep. So it was just like, okay, here's the obvious thing. We've got to figure out how to get to consistency. But as I went to places like Envision, where it was like at $30 million, like the consistency was set. Yeah. Right? Like they were past this point of, is this thing going to be a business or not? And they were very much to the point of how do we actually go from 25, $26 million to a hundred million dollars? Like so let, that journey is different. this, this will be, is a perfect intro to the second question and second drink. So yeah, great. we're going to keep you rolling. Your first drink. It was Good. delicious. Yeah. Uh, this is Rodney Hammer's slow stills whiskey Paloma. What? So this is a Paloma made of whiskey. There's a lot of hesitancy around I this know. one, so we're gonna understand this. We're gonna figure it out. Yeah. And it's uh oh, it's it's grapefruit color. Yeah. All right. I'm actually jealous of your ice cubes at this point. See, I like that better than the Mai Tai. That's yeah, actually I would nice. Agree. I would that's agree. weird. That's weird that that's good, actually. Yeah, yeah, it is much better than I thought it would be, and it's even better over ice. Yeah. All right. All right. So we're gonna get into to process now. 
as we start to think about like your movement from Rike into Envision and then into Airtable, and now as a board member and as, as a consultant and looking for your next thing, um, you have to have a process of when you go into a business and you evaluate that I'm going to spend my next two to five years in this business. Yeah. Like is number one, your process of deciding when you're going into this business, like what is that process that makes you excited and wanting to invest your time? And then the second piece of that is actually what do you do when you get into that business to evaluate what you need to do? Yeah. Um, so I'd love to explore. Yeah. Those yeah. Two so concepts. how I've always found kind of that next opportunity to, to invest my time in, I, I think this, definition has evolved, but I think it's probably similar to how a lot of people think about it. It's look, life is too short. Yeah. If you're not solving a problem that you think is like interesting, that you can wake up every morning grinding on, then you probably shouldn't be doing it. And so that's the lowest level of decision criteria for me. The second thing is who are the people around the table? Because the people make a disproportionate difference in the outcomes of these companies. Who's the CEO? What is that person's vision? Why do they do what they do? What's their interest in driving a commercial success relative to a personal success. Yeah. And like there, you just get better at doing those types of things. And then the last thing is like the economic opportunity. Like, is this an undervalued asset? Do I see a path to this being 100, 200, 300, $400 million in revenue business and the commensurate valuation that would be hopefully traded at one point in time for actual money? Yeah. So that roughly is how I go through and assess whether or not it's something that I want to spend my time doing or not. When I'm going through the process of talking to a company, usually you have a pretty good idea of what the product is, like yeah. what is its objective function, what problem does it solve, yeah. and what is the business model? Like how do they go about uh, solving that problem for customers, whether it's via a SaaS solution that looks at like a PLG product or a freemium product. Over the last, call it 10 years, I've really been uh, drawn towards PLG companies because I believed, uh, and I still believe, that buying has fundamentally changed, yeah. that there is an expectation that a buyer has the ability to understand the value of the product before they purchase. And if you think about the traditional world of a, a lack of uh, ability to do that, you know, packaged software or hardware, those types of things, there just aren't that many examples left right. of successful companies that have the ability to do that. Now, there is- It's gotta be, like, the category has got to be defined and it has to be widely adopted in order to get there as well. Yeah, right? there's got to be enough interest in the marketplace for a solution to this problem. Right. And people have to be actively looking for it and they have to be interested in seeing that solution. Yeah, like hence why Calendly did so well. Of right? course. People were like, why doesn't Google let me share a link to go book meetings? Right. And that was it. That was fundamentally what they did. Right. right? And it's like, Which is still a great open question. Why doesn't Google allow you <laughs> to share that link? I, I don't know. I don't either. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, I mean, big companies are, are interesting places. At the end of the day, when you're going through this process of doing this assessment, you have a pretty good idea of here's the business model and here are the typical flaws that that business model has. So you're in there when you're doing the work and you've decided this is the gig yeah. and you start the gig yeah. and you go, great, I've already crossed off the checklist of do I believe in the founder and the idea yeah. in the market in yeah. the product? Yeah. And then what do you do? Yeah. You're in okay. there. So, like, so, so what do you do? the example, like yeah. Envision. I, fell in love with the space, had this premise that designers were an underappreciated category of software developer and Absolutely. they were going to have disproportionate impact on future companies. And Adobe owned the space and it was like, Adobe why the is there not And more? Sketch was this, this uh, screen design tool that everybody used, but 
you know, like old five playing. years ago. It's like six, six, seven, something like that. Yeah. So, so like when I joined the company, we were great at selling prototyping, right? That was the effect, uh, objective function yeah. of what Envision did. Yep. It was like stitch all these screenshots together, make this interactive experience, use that to be able to like sell to VCs the idea behind this, you know, uh, product or to sell internally how we should evolve a product. And what became pretty user clear, testing, all the user things. testing, yeah. all of those things, what yeah. became pretty clear was like that functionality of prototyping that has features associated with it and like ways people use it was actually an on ramp to a much larger problem, which was collaboration around this design asset to be able to shrink the amount of time that it takes from designing something to building something and doing so in the most efficient manner possible. And if you think about the difference between selling a prototyping tool and selling a solution that allows you to be able to shrink the time from ideation to development, they're kind of two different problems that have to be sold at different levels in the organization. A prototyping decision is made by a single person. What prototyping tool do I use? A decision around how we as an organization collaborate around building an amazing product, it's an organizational problem that needs to be sold at a different level within the organization. So your ICP, so part of the process of going into specifically Envision, and I'm sure you see this and saw this at Airtable as well, is that you go, okay, who is my true ICP? And from the beginning of, of you helping us out at Postal, it's always been like, who are the main users? Who are the buyers of this product? And where do they see value? Yes. And so in the, the instance of Envision, to where you have a $30 million revenue business, they built the foundation of that business on the users, yep. right, on $99 a month deals. Yep. And you go, wait a second, this actually, in order for this to be a big company, it's got to be the whole entire team. Yep. So you've identified that. Yep. What do you do after you've identified that? What yeah. happens then? Usually that requires a pretty significant change management. Effort, right, because that's right? a, you're a CRO and the founder is like, ah, like we yeah. had did this thing and I mean, what how helps do you do is that? usually your founders are trying to figure out how do they build the most valuable company possible. Correct. So like they're usually not pushing against this idea of like, yeah, let's extract more value for what we're actually building here and what we've actually developed. Right. So part of my job is to be able to paint that picture of the larger value that we could be. Right, 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 right. So in the case of Envision, it was like, OK, look, we have to get out of the business of selling feature function based prototyping tools and get into the business of selling the outcomes of solving this collaboration problem around how you go from design to product. And that was a, how do we install a sales process and a methodology that like, that lines up to that. Sure. Top down, us, right? at, the, at the end of the day, it was, we have to change kind of hearts and minds within our buyers to kind of reprogram how they think about us from being this prototyping solution to this collaboration solution. Yeah. And so we spent a lot of time looking at different sales methodologies. We ended up building our own, but it was based roughly around the challenge. Sure. Sale. Yeah. The idea that there is this big macro change that the winners and losers in the future of business will be determined as much by the digital experiences that they have right. as the physical experiences that they have between themselves and their customers. And that if you can win those digital touch points, you're going to get a disproportionate amount of the spoils of any category. And using the examples of why is Airbnb's market cap bigger than Hilton and Marriott right. combined? Yeah. Well, the reason is they built a better business based off of being this digital native company. And the beautiful thing for us at Envision at the time was we had this 
great platform for being able to tell a huge business transformation story. Imagine being able to go into Marriott and have a conversation around the practices that a company like Airbnb uses to be able to build amazing digital products. Yeah. Like, here's how you set up your team. Here's how you should think about goaling those folks. Yeah. Here's how you should coordinate between each other. Being able to kind of lay out the roadmap for Marriott to know that they could build just like Airbnb. Yeah. People are willing to pay sure. a lot of money yeah. to have a have the market cornered on a specific process, but they're willing to spend even more money to be able to catch up with their nearest competitors and potentially supplant them. Right. And that's what we were trading on. And that allowed us to be able to pretty quickly in the course of, you know, two and a half years, uh, go from like, you know, sub 30 to a hundred million dollars in business. Yeah. Um, so it was, a, it was a really great motion. Were you spending, yeah. was it more money that you were spending to get there? When you think about scalability, like, of course you guys raised a tremendous amount of capital and you had access to that capital because of the story. Mm -hmm. But when you think about the unit economics, as you started to grow that business, um, the next question that we're going to have in the next drink is going to be around measurement and actually yeah. how you get to a point. So why don't we do that right now? Cause we got 10 minutes left. Um, we're going to go to our next drink right now. This is Rodney Hammer's whiskey margarita. Whiskey margarita. So we're going to continue down the uh, tequila the, whiskey theme. The tequila whiskey theme. And this is, I'm a little nervous about this one, but my guess is it's going to be yellow. Oh, it's horrible pour. Oh, yeah, look at that. Looks nice. It looks like a margarita. It does. Honestly, you can't really tell, tell it's a whiskey either. They, they, they kind of kind of smell like what they're intended to smell and like. They nail the the profile of it, mm -hmm. and then it could be. I mean, any. I'm guessing this is not like brown whiskey. This is probably un, like unaged whiskey. Yeah, steel right? tank, steel tank. Yeah, white yeah. lightning. I don't know. It, definitely not port barrels. See, that's not bad. This is twenty. This is like twenty two proof too. This is eleven percent alcohol. Um, the next one's going to be interesting. That's the whiskey mule. I think that's going to be my yeah. favorite. Okay. All right, so. Um, as we're getting into kind of the, where you are now, yeah. we're still in this, like you have this process of identified the, the company you have this process of identifying what you need to do, and then you start to measure. And so yeah. what I was starting to get into was, so you're measuring, how do you measure the scaling yeah. and what are the most important things that you think about when measurement? In, yeah. In I, especially for recurring revenue businesses, there's really three things. Okay. The first and most obvious is net new customer acquisition. Are we winning more new customers as a result of this change of strategy? Do we see evidence of our core ICP, not all companies, but the ones that we believe are the right ones for us to focus on being attracted to our message? And so that's pretty simple. You put it yourself in front of, let's say 50 companies in your core ICP in the last quarter, we closed 40 of them. Our win rate is this, you know, the yeah. sales cycle is that. It's all the basic blocking and tackling associated with running a net new customer acquisition machine. Yep. That I think is pretty uncontroversial. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Either you're winning or you're not. Those are the economics that every VC asks for. You either are good or not. It's like deferred. Totally. Yes. So the, the more important aspect in my mind is once you've got that core ICP, what is your growth rate within those folks? Like what is the expansion, the upsell, the cross sell, the ability to extract more value from the relationship that you've already built? Because so it costs you so much to get that already. Can you get more out of them? That's exactly the name of the game. Yeah. And that is actually, it's a kind of a multi-dimensional win 
Because if you can build an engine that allows you to be able to upgrade your best customers, they also tend to stick around longer. Right. Like when I was- They're invested. They're invested. Yeah. When I was at LogMeIn, we had this host of products and it became really clear for us, if we could get somebody to use more than three products from us, they never left. They never left. Like we never saw churn. Mm. So that just became a bar that we would use to be able to metric our team to say, hey, have we done enough to be able to drive right. penetration right. of our products within our existing customer base? So that upsell, cross-sell motion, doubly important. And I, as soon as I'm coming into an organization, I'm trying to figure out like, how do we juice that up? How do we give those people that have selected us an opportunity to select more from us? And then the third piece is retention. It's a lagging indicator. It's like something that you don't necessarily know until somebody has an opportunity to churn. Yeah. A lot of these businesses have this kind of, especially when they start like a lot of monthly agreements. And so you do get some pretty early signals around like, Hey, are we doing things that are pushing too hard that are impacting churn? Is it churn in the right types of customers mm. with our ICP versus just churn for the other customers that we probably shouldn't be having. But ultimately to be able to make sure that you're retaining logos at an exceedingly high rate is the name of the game. Like you have to, as a revenue leader, think about your customer base as a basket of stocks. And that basket is either getting more valuable or less valuable over time. Interesting. And if those folks are leaving your basket, that basket of stocks is definitely going to get less right, valuable right. if they're the right types of But customers. now in today's, I mean, where we are right now, which is August 23rd, 2023, like this is, the, this is the doldrums. We're yeah. officially in kind of the darkest times in the last... 15 years, 10 years, I guess yeah. you could call early you know, 2010s yeah. as challenging as well. But as, as churn as being the highest out there and rep efficiency at being the lowest marks and close rates being at the lowest marks in specifically the technology sector, um, ultimately, when you look at companies and almost the situation of trading revenue right now, right? Because you, you have a lot of churn happening in a lot of businesses. Yep. And a lot of businesses have made the decision to go up market, which fundamentally in, in PLG businesses is very difficult. Yeah, right. Airtable kind of went through the same thing. They go, you know, when you were there, they're like, hey, we're going to go up market now. And they had one of the best NRRs in the universe, and ultimately had one of the best like viral tools out there yeah. of getting more users. Yeah. And so when you when you make the mindset and the change around going up market and trading SMB revenue or user base revenue for more, that's very much like a, a big focus of, of what we're seeing today. And I guess, you know, our experience early in our careers is much different than today. So if you were to give advice around the things happening to the listeners today, what advice would you give around those metrics that you talked about yeah. and measurement around yeah. that? Because it's all bad right now. It's not yeah, I, I think. One of the things that we did well at Airtable was think about segmenting our customer base there and really understanding within the holistic customer base, which are the customers that we wanted to invest more time with, invest more dollars with because of the growth potential associated with those accounts. Yeah. And over the long term, if you can continue to grow those companies and they continue to retain, and again, those forces work together because if they're buying more, their likelihood of retention is yeah. going to be increased by that that it's just a much more efficient machine over time. Yep. And if I was kind of in that doldrum of trying to figure out like, how do I get through this next 12 months? How do I survive? I take a really hard look at your existing customer base and spend time understanding what am I giving them an opportunity to purchase yep. that is of value and how have I built my organization 
to go and capture that value. Like yeah. spend time talking to customers around the value that they're getting. Spend time explaining to them that there is more value to be had here if they were to invest more. Yeah. Like focus on those people, right? It's just such an advantage, I think, as an outside investor looking at a business, if they have a clear sense of here is where we're successful, here is where we are unassailable in our future. Right. 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 And do you have the capital to go out and win all the other companies that look like that right now? Maybe not. Yeah. And if you don't, that's okay. That's what more capital is for. But an investor and an executive like myself wants to know that you have a sense yeah. of like where you can yeah, be yeah. dominant and yeah. where you can be successful. Yeah. And so I think that's the job to be done in the near term. Like, like the playbook of like, hey, we're gonna just grow top line and eventually that growth will turn into profitable growth. You kind of have to retire that for the near for the time for yeah. the time being at least uh, absolutely yeah. um awesome thank you for that uh last one whiskey mule and we're going to finish it up with the best experiment that you ever ran so this podcast uh, fundamentally is about trying new things and yeah. especially these drinks that All we're right. drinking this is i just I, I know this is gonna be my favorite big ginger fan over here so let's let's talk about experimentation and the best experiment that you run Except for, I mean, hiring me was one of those experiences. So we could just say that. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, by the way, the ginger is like forward on the nose. Um, I didn't. Did that come out, that out because of that? But it was like, it almost came out my nose. All right. The best, <laughs> the best experiment. Okay. Here's a fun one. And I spent a, a fair amount That's of good. time recently talking to people about, about this. When we were working at Reich, one of the things that we realized is that we were in a very competitive marketplace. When yeah. people were taking uh, a trial of our product or using our product, they were often trying a different product at the same time in the same category, yeah. like two or three products, right? right? And, uh, and, and different divisions were using different, different products. Different divisions were yeah. using different, but yeah. I'm talking about like same person that's coming into the funnel, looking at multiple products, trying to decide which was the right one for us. Yeah. The days of people just doing one evaluation are probably over, right? Because it's so easy to be able to get to all these different products. And so it's just like, hey, I'm going to figure out which one do I like best. So we had this premise that if we could shrink time to first contact, it would make a pretty massive difference in conversion that. rates. Yeah. And so we ran a test and lo and behold, it had a massive impact. It was like 3x our conversion rate if we were the first company to talk to that potential buyer versus the second or third company. Hey, do you remember what we implemented for that? Yeah. You, you want to talk about it? Uh, that was when we met Manny Medina at Outreach and he had just had started Outreach. And the only reason we went with Outreach and not Yesware was because we could trigger that email sequence to happen upon that get lead getting into Salesforce. And I wasn't going to go with that, but no, that's a good shout out was, for Manny. That was, and that was, yeah, not even a shout out. That was, when we did that, when we did that, that helped us get to the first contact, right? But you wanted people calling. You could talk about that. Yeah. Yes. Like, okay. it's not good enough in my mind to send an email to somebody to show them that you're interested in engaging with them. What we were always after was being able to have a conversation to set the criteria for how a decision was made on a product in that category. Imagine being able to come into a conversation and educate a buyer on, hey, when you're looking at a project management technology, you should be looking at these types of things. This is what we've seen historically. Yeah. One of the things that most companies are concerned about are Gantt charts. Insert seemingly lame feature. But if you can start setting the expectation that if you're buying a, a technology in this category and you don't have a Gantt chart, yeah. like it's not even really a choice, 
that allows you to be able to incept the unfair advantage that your business has relative to your competition. Right. So that's why I always wanted to be the first to the conversation. The second piece though is operationalizing that is difficult. Mm. You and I grew up in a world of, hey, you've got sales reps that are assigned to specific territories. There's a bunch of advantages around that. Yeah. Well, guess what? If it's all about like speed to lead yeah. and you've got somebody that's out to lunch, well, they're not gonna be very quick to that lead because they gotta go eat their lunch and they've gotta whatever, follow up on their email. And so the process and the systems necessary to be able to really maximize for that were not in place. And so that's where one of our sales ops people and I were working through this idea of a pull mechanism for leads. Yeah. It's like, as a sales rep, log into Salesforce, put yourself in an active status. You then have access to the queue of leads yep. and we're going to route the best lead to you as your next conversation to be had. Yep. And we're going to measure how long does it take from pull to conversation. And then secondarily, that gives you this really interesting mechanism for being able to do gamification. Yep. It's like, hey, I'm giving the best people in our organization that Shark have the tank. highest close yeah. rate yeah. the opportunity to be able to get those best leads first. Yep. Obviously, that only works when you have a certain amount of scale. But those are the types of things that I love because that allowed us to be able to run a lot of experiments in that one really refined space towards the objective function of our business, which was let's increase conversion rate as much as we possibly can. It's awesome. Well, we're at time. Great. Appreciate you, man. I this can't is, believe that this... I drank whiskey at 1030. Well, you know what? Welcome to slow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a lifestyle. Thanks, man. <laughs> All right. Appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for joining us in our first episode. Thanks to Rotten Hammers and their delicious whiskey drinks. Favorite one? I think it was the Paloma. I agree. Yeah. All right, folks. Thank you. And join us for the next episode. <laughs>